This is Conducting Business. I'm Naomi Lewin. Imagine that you're at a concert, it's after intermission, the lights have dimmed, and you are settling in to hear this piece, the Brahms Requiem. Then suddenly, a protest breaks out. That's what happened at a recent St. Louis Symphony concert when a group of people protesting the police shooting of Michael Brown began to sing and chant and even unfurl banners from the balcony. The protest, which is just the latest in a history of concert hall demonstrations, made national headlines. We will get three views on this today. On the line first is Sarah Bryan Miller, classical music critic of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, who was there. What was the first thing that signaled you something's a little off here? Well, the conductor had raised his arms, the chorus had stood, and then a man on the main floor, a rather good tenor, started singing Which Side Are You On?, the old civil rights union standard. And then another voice joined in, and then others, and then I was sitting in the balcony, people came down into the boxes and unfurled their banners and started throwing, cut out red hearts down into the orchestra seats below. Cut out red hearts? Red hearts. And it said, they read Requiem from Mike Brown. It had his dates of birth and death. And on the back, there was contact information. And whom were they asking you to contact? I guess them to get involved. Okay. I understand these protesters all had bought tickets to the concert. Did they yes, stand we out? encourage this. <laughs> <laughs> a good way to build audiences, sort of? <laughs> well, I wish they'd stayed and heard the Requiem because it was a, a very fine performance and actually rendered a little more poignant from what went before it. How so? It forced people to think about not just mortality. You know, Brahms' texts from Martin Luther's translation of the Bible, but it's more general you're you're listening to a concert hall. You're not perhaps thinking about individuals who have died. Uh, and this forced us to think about an individual who had died. So they chose the performance well. Oh, they did. They did. There have been differing accounts of how sympathetic or hostile the audience was to the protest. What kinds of reactions did you see and hear? I didn't hear very much. It was very quiet where I, up where I was sitting, when when they were leaving and the conductor had returned to his spot, someone shouted, now for some real singing, which is the only thing I heard that was negative. And uh, Adam Crane of the St. Louis Symphony Orchestra, who works the broadcasts, I think handled it very well. He said, I think we, what we just heard was real singing. We invited the St. Louis Symphony to join us today, but they said they're not doing any more interviews about this. How have they responded to this demonstration? I think the SLSO has handled it very well. They've, they handled it well at the time. They have handled it well since. The, the orchestra is involved. They have a, a program called In Unison, and which probably, I think it's 20 years old. They reached out to historically black churches, both in the area around Powell Symphony Hall and in other black areas in the city and the nearer suburbs. So they've had a presence in that area for a couple of decades now. And they worked with their with their churches and their people there. They've been involved in some concerts. Uh, there have been three concerts given for Ferguson for scholarships to help feed people. And this was and before the demonstration? 
yeah, this is before this demonstration. And Opera Theatre of St. Louis is another group that's been very involved with that. These are both institutions that have a major presence in the community and throughout the St. Louis area. Was there any security concern involved? Should the ushers have maybe been more active in removing the protesters? Oh, I saw one usher go down and ask a young woman holding a banner, one end of the banner, to to leave. And I got up and uh, spoke very briefly to one young woman as she was leaving one of the banner holders, and she handed me a red heart. And I mean, she was she was sweet. (laughs) She was a college kid, I think. When it ended, there was a smattering of applause, both from the audience and from the stage, from all the musicians, singers, and instrumentalists alike. So do you think Not they universal, were... universal, but there was, there was applause from so, the stage. So do you think they were successful in getting their message out with this protest, given that applause? I, I think so. I think so. And most of the people I've heard from who are negative about it were not people who were there. <laughs> uh, really? Just like the idea on principle, I guess. In spite of the St. Louis Symphony outreach to the community, do you think this protest suggests anything about the lack of diversity in concert halls on or off stage? I'm not sure. Most of the protesters I saw were white. And most of the audience members that one saw in the video were were also white. I did not get the impression that they were protesting the orchestra or protesting the audience or certainly not protesting the work. I think they were trying to raise awareness. I was in Florissant for a story on a visual artist, who, a black gentleman, illustrator of children's books, who decided he would take his easel and go up and paint right across the street from the burned-out quick trip. And, and it's a different world in a way. I've been to Florissant many times, I mean to Ferguson, rather, for many times, and it's a nice place. And I'm, you know, I think... Anybody who knows Ferguson is shocked that this has happened there. It's this one particular corner. Anyway, but I was there with the uh, with the artist and listening to these people, and it's completely alien to most people's experience. Most certainly, most white people's experience, most middle class people's experience, what these people go through all the time. And I think the it's legitimate to try to bring that out to a wider audience. Well, thank you very very much for joining us. Well, thank you. Sarah Brian Miller is the classical music critic of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. Protests in the concert hall are nothing new. Think of the riot that took place in 1913 at the premiere of Stravinsky's Rite of Spring. Recently, protesters for a variety of causes have picketed the Metropolitan Opera, the Israel Philharmonic, and Valery Gergiev's Mariinsky Orchestra, among others. Beyond making sensational headlines, is there something deeper at play? Joining us now are Philip Kennicott, the art and architecture critic of the Washington Post, and Kenneth Woods, a conductor, cellist, and author of the blog, A View from the Podium. Ken, you wrote on your blog, and Sarah Brian Miller, who was there in St. Louis at the concert, agrees with you that the St. Louis protest actually brought more relevance to the Brahms Requiem and moved it beyond the routine. What did you mean by that? I I meant it on a few different levels. I think one of the things that made that protest particularly effective as a political act was that there was a quite poetic synergy between the statement that was being made and the music that was being heard. Uh, And the idea of a sung protest before performance of a great choral work, 
I think is very moving. And the idea of protesting a violent death before a requiem is appropriate and interesting. I think there was uh, a nice uh, coming together of what the existing work is about with the historical moment that I think not only was sort of effective politics, but made for quite good theater, too. Philip, do you think the Michael Brown protest in St. Louis was effective? I think it was. You know, I was really struck by the the videos that emerged and have been um, linked to many of the news accounts of it, that the protesters clearly are aware of the rituals of the concert hall. You know, they came in and they waited for that moment of silence uh, after the orchestra has finished tuning and the conductor is about to give the, you know, the downbeat to the piece. So they were aware that there was going to be silence at that moment and that that's a very sort of pregnant moment of silence for a piece. I thought they did, in a way, a magnificent job. And, you know, to build on what, what Ken was saying... You know, requiems obviously remind us of death, and the Brahms Requiem in particular, because it breaks with the liturgical poetry, really kind of personalizes the notion of death. And I think that after all the debate we've had about Michael Brown in Ferguson, um, all the all the other debates about you know uh, you know police mistreatment and and the militarization of our police and so on, that one of the things that has kind of gotten lost is the power of his death, the fact that he died. And so I see this as a a very poignant connection of something that people in that community are thinking uh, about with a piece that makes us all think about that. Ken, you've written about protests, and you said there have been many political protests at the proms concerts over the years, some poignant and effective, some simply disgraceful. What separates the effective from the disgraceful? I think a respect for the audience and the music makes for a more potent and powerful protest. Uh, the One of the examples I cited on my blog was the 1968 proms, there was a protest just before Rostropovich played the Dvorak cello concerto. It was the crushing of the Prague Spring. Rostropovich, a great Russian artist, was performing with the Soviet State Orchestra. And just before they were about to start the Dvorak, this great Czech masterpiece, there was a quite vocal disruption in the room. And I think what the protesters didn't take into account, but which became clear in the course of that performance, was that Rostropovich and the other musicians on stage were very much simpatico with the people protesting. I think you saw that in St. Louis the other night, too, that uh, there was a great deal of support and empathy in the room for the protesters. So the musicians that, were applauding from the stage. Somehow. Absolutely. And I mean, there were some lovely tweets from some members of the orchestra saying how inspiring and wonderful it was to see that happen and to, to feel all that passion and energy in the room before a performance. And uh, so, in, in a sense, that, that 1968 moment started out, I think, somewhat disappointingly in the sense that there was an enmity projected between the protesters and the musicians, which then, over the course of this remarkable performance that Rostropovich gave, tears in his eyes, playing the cello like no one's really ever played it before or since. So I think it's that understanding of the possibility for creating healing and togetherness, which music can be a beautiful framework for and maybe other protest venues don't offer such a, a great vehicle for creating empathy and connection. Philip, St. Louis was clearly caught off guard by this protest. You just wrote about the John Adams opera, The Death of Klinghoffer, for Opera News. The Met is putting that on shortly. There have already been protests outside the house. Do you think they're preparing 
for the possibility of something happening inside the House. I assume that they're they're thinking about all the eventualities of this, um, and there are a lot of you know there's a lot of anger and a lot of passion. I was thinking about those particular protests and how one might distinguish the ire that's being directed at that piece from the kind of protests that happened in St. Louis recently. And again, I think that you know Ken's comment about respect for the music really is is pertinent here. What's frustrated me about the Adams protests is that oftentimes it seems the people who are speaking most loudly about the piece uh, know the piece the least, or maybe not even at all. And so there isn't actually a respect for the music or respect for the work of art, because there isn't an understanding of it upon which the protests are really premised. I, I agree. And I think uh, John Adams has gone on record as explaining that in his view, the whole opera is an exercise in trying to create empathy and in trying to create complex and realistic human portraits of all the characters in the uh, libretto. And I think that requires open-minded listening and, and trusting that the composer is, is really after something. I think you can't get to that point just by sort of reading a summary of the plot or going on the basis of, of hearsay. Do you think anything can be done to deflect protest from the upcoming Met production of The Death of Klinghoffer? I think just continuing to create opportunities for dialogue and listening and letting the people who want to protest have their say by all means. I think the, the best way to move a conversation forward is to listen rather than talk and make sure that the people who have concerns about the opera can state their concerns clearly and then encourage them to listen to the artist, to the composer, and, and see if, if there's a way that some common ground can be found or at least a space in which to hear the, the piece in a thoughtful way. I might jump in and add an interesting St. Louis connection with that question, which is that the opera uh, Death of Klinghoffer was performed not so long ago at Opera Theatre of St. Louis, and the opera company there, um, concerned about whether or not there might be objections to to the piece, was very proactive about setting up dialogues across the community and kind of turned it into a moment for having panel discussions and invited some of the people who might have been presumed to find the opera offensive to kind of come in and speak before they even performed it. And in fact, the, the performances there really came off without any of the controversy that has dogged the, the production that's going to happen at the Met. In the case of this recent protest in St. Louis, they didn't really disrupt the performance. They delayed it. Is that really sort of a key distinction? I think that is a key distinction. There have been some examples at, at the proms in recent years where protesters have actually made noise and, and created a disruption during the music. And I think, I think that's unfortunate because it's a sort of destructive rather than a constructive act. And I think it was nice to see that corrective in terms of the news coverage of this event be made early on. Uh, you know, the first few reports, you, you did hear the word interrupted a lot. It, which made it sound as if you know something quite chaotic had happened in the middle of the music, and you know, thank goodness it was well filmed and well documented because I think what you see when you actually watch the footage is something very touching, and a lot of sincerity, a lot of uh, nice feeling between those who are protesting and those who are listening. I mean, there's a few people who don't come off brilliantly in it, but uh, I think it, it's lucky that we have a, a document of that. And, and who knows, maybe the riot at the Rite of Spring was not as mean spirited as. Uh, we're sometimes led to believe. I would add to that that I think it's it's important to make a distinction between talking over and talking to. 
And in our society, we have a great deal of talking over each other. And the inevitable consequence of that is that the message, neither message gets through. I think it was very powerful symbolically for them not to do it during the music, but to do it beforehand to make that distinction. Do you think moments like this erupting make classical music in some way more exciting, more relevant for concert goers? I guess what I'd say is I think it's it's kind of flattering to the St. Louis Symphony that people felt that this was a locus of community to which they wanted to bring these ideas and these feelings, and that that's a kind of relevance that isn't necessarily about the music, but it's about the symphony having established itself as a place within the community, and that's a very good thing. Ken, you wrote about a whole bunch of composers who had revolutionary ideas in their music. And then there is the opposite school of thought that the concert hall is above politics and should transcend the everyday. So how do you reconcile those two notions? I think there's a a sense in which all composers at their best tend to create works of art that universalize shared experience. I think there's something artistically to be said for the fact, for instance, that Beethoven changed the name of the Eroica from Bonaparte to Eroica. It makes it a more universal statement, less particular to one man in one historical moment. He he did it for more pragmatic reasons. But When the politics changed, he... When the politics changed, and it just goes to show you that, you know, music is most effective in engaging with political challenges when we step beyond politics as a mechanism and as an individually happening phenomenon and look at the universal human ideas that maybe bring people together in the listening experience. You know, you can see that there might be a sort of absurdity to some kinds of protests in certain sort of concert situations. You know, do you go to a performance of the Goldberg Variations and make noise about poultry price supports or something? I mean, there there doesn't seem to be a, you know, a connection between those things. Um, But there are certain pieces and certain composers and certain musicians as well who have a higher status. You know, we see them as engaged with with deeper issues. And then I think, you know, I'm not saying it's it's fair game to protest or, or make those political, but the invitation seems more obvious and more open. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. We've been speaking with Philip Kennicott, the art and architecture critic of The Washington Post, and Kenneth Woods, a conductor, cellist, and author of the blog, A View from the Podium. Brian Wise is the producer of Conducting Business. I'm Naomi Lewin. Thanks for listening.